I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Last week, um, Tim Bahula closed his message with a quote from John Piper talking about the centrality of worship for mission. And certainly, as a church, we need to delight in God if we are to be a base camp for believers and a lighthouse to the lost. In fact, I dare say that's really the foundation of our being a base camp for believers and a lighthouse for the lost. Daniel Hames and Michael Reeves would note, um, this comes from a book called God Shines Forth. It's in the library. I highly encourage you to grab, uh, to grab the book and read through it. It has fed my soul tremendously. Hames and Reeves note, the surge of happiness we know as we appreciate God in his radiant kindness is one and the same movement that opens our mouths in praise and proclamation. Our going out to the world with the gospel is not an endeavor that Christians have to hitch onto knowing God, bringing to the task a vigor and vim outsourced from elsewhere. Rather, the heart-gladdening, feet-quickening reality of God is itself at once all the motivation, the content, and the zest of our going. It is precisely because God, from his own glorious fullness, fills us with joy in him that we begin to bubble over with it to those around. This is the theological dynamic of mission. The wellspring of healthy, happy mission is God himself. And so to that end, I'd like us to study the gospel of Mark so that we can reflect on the beauty and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 12. Let's pick up from there. Mark 2, verse 1 to verse 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like this. That, in a nutshell, is the incomparable glory and greatness of Jesus. Mark is showing us that there is none like Jesus. And he begins by showing us that Jesus fulfills God's promise of a second exodus in chapter 1, verse 1 up to verse 3. The quotation here from the prophet Isaiah is actually a mixture of three passages of which only one is from Isaiah. The point of it is that God is bringing, out, bringing about a second exodus in the person of Jesus Christ. If you recall from our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, God had marvelously exerted his sovereign power to return his people from exile. But Ezra and Nehemiah's best efforts to establish, or perhaps better said, reestablish the identity and purpose of the people of God fell far short of prophetic expectations. The people were back in the land, but they could not keep their covenant commitments to God. And so they were still worthy of judgment. And Israel's persistent covenant infidelity embodies our own basic problem. Whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, we are rebels hell-bent on getting our own way. Sin has such a grip on our hearts that we need radical transformation. We need more than a makeover. We need to be made new. And so John the Baptist prepares the way for Yahweh's second exodus by calling the people to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see that in verse 4. And as he speaks of, as he calls people to repentance, which in itself was surprising to them, because he is calling faithful Jews, or people who thought themselves faithful Jews, to repentance. As he points them, as he calls them to repentance, he also points in verse 8, uh, verse 7 and verse 8, to one who is mightier than him, who will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Now you need to understand, John was the first prophet to arise after 400 years of silence from God. That in itself would have caused people to get excited. And it was even more exciting because if the coming one would baptize his people with the Holy Spirit, that meant that the coming one wasn't just bringing a new exodus, he was also bringing in the promise of the new covenant from Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. That new covenant would bring forgiveness of sins and the transformative presence of the Spirit of God. 
So John the Baptist was giving the people of God hope even as he called them to repentance. And so you can imagine the excitement of the people as they anticipated this coming one that John was proclaiming. And as we read this, we're thinking, who is this person who's coming? But then you have a bit of a surprise in verse 9. Because Mark shifts the scene to the coming of somebody called Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. Coming to be baptized by John. Who's this Jesus? And why is he coming from a small town called Nazareth in the insignificant region of Galilee? If you want a deliverer, you want somebody from Jerusalem, from maybe the high priestly family, or maybe from the kingly line of David. Not a nobody from Nazareth. And this coming one was supposed to be greater than John, but why is he coming to John in order to be baptized in verse 9? That's a contradiction, isn't it? Well, forget the surprise. What happens next in verse 10 and verse 11 is even more shocking. We are told that as Jesus came out of the water, immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, the heavens being torn open echoes Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 64 that God would bring salvation. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It's a prayer reminiscent of the cataclysmic displays of God's power, such as what took place when God poured out the ten plagues on Egypt and, op and parted the Red Sea. That the heavens were torn open at Jesus' baptism meant that God was answering Isaiah's prayer. And the descent of the Spirit evokes the Spirit in Genesis 1 brooding over the waters of creation. So that with that imagery that Mark cites, he is pointing out that Jesus is like no other because his coming does not simply bring about a second exodus and a new covenant. Jesus comes to bring a new creation. That's why Mark begins chapter 1 by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's an echo of Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, this is a new creation that is coming about in the person of Jesus Christ. And God's affirmation to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. It's meant to confirm to us the identity and purpose of Jesus. On one hand, God's statement echoes Psalm 2, verse 7, which proclaims the king to be God's son so that it shows that Jesus is the anointed ruler who represents God to his people. And on the other hand, God's words to Jesus 
also point us back to Genesis 22, verse 2, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. And there is also an implicit echo of Isaiah 42, so that we recognize that Jesus is the servant of the Lord. One who we are told later on in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, would lay down his life as our sin bearer. So as James Edwards points out, in the sublime declaration to Jesus at the baptism, we encounter fatherly love and filial obedience, kingship and suffering service. Each is a facet of what it means to be the son of God. So that from the get-go, we see Jesus is the Son of God, not simply an earthly king who is declared to be Son, but the second person of the triune God. God has come in the flesh to bring salvation. But lest we think that Jesus came to save by force of arms, Mark then immediately moves to another scene, verse 12. We are told that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark does not give too many details. Because the emphasis in Mark's account is Jesus' conflict with Satan. Jesus is the one who is mightier than John, who enters into conflict with Satan, who battles Satan by being faithful to the Father, even in hostile and dangerous territory. You will note he was in the wilderness with the wild animals. He was faithful to obey where Adam and Israel miserably failed. But you will also note, if you compare Matthew and Luke with Mark, that Mark does not tell us that Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness. As far as Mark is concerned, this was just a, an initial skirmish. The ultimate victory would take place on the cross of Calvary. Because on the cross of Calvary, the Son of God would defeat Satan not by force of arms, but by arms outstretched on the cross, by dying for the sins of his people. Jesus saves by his faithfulness to God, even to the point of death. The temptation in the wilderness is just the opening act. But that opening act foreshadows the ultimate triumph of King Jesus. His faithful obedience and redemptive sacrifice reconcile us to God. And that's why in verse 15, Jesus proclaims, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom had come in his very person. As God and king, he, Jesus, has come to save so that in a very real sense, 
Jesus himself is the good news. And we see that as Jesus in verse 16 to 20 calls his first disciples and the invitation is follow me. You cannot separate that from his statement, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. To repent and believe in the gospel is to follow Jesus. He is calling Simon, Andrew, James, and John to repent and believe in him. And that repentance to which Jesus calls them is nothing less than a lifelong reorientation of values. One of the things you will note as you read through the Gospel of Mark is that the disciples always struggle to understand Jesus. From beginning to end, they're struggling. And we'll say more about that in the coming days. But it is meant to be a lifelong reorientation of values. Because to follow Jesus is not to become a fan when it's convenient. To follow Jesus is to turn away from our self-centered rebellion against God and to submit to his kingship. That is implicit in Jesus saying, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They turn away from themselves to follow Jesus, and he will make them into something else as they submit to his kingship. As Sinclair Ferguson says, we abandon all our efforts to rule our own lives and establish our own kingdoms, but we succeed in doing that only when Jesus exercises his royal power over us through our trust in him and the message he brings us from God. And you see that royal power being exercised in the call of the disciples because we are told in verse 20, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. This is sort of a call in the void. Mark does not explain why they followed. Mark does not explain how they knew Jesus. Because Mark wants us to see the sovereign call of that Jesus extends in the obedience of his disciples. He summons them and they cannot but obey because Jesus is God himself bringing in the kingdom of God in his person. And that note of authority is displayed from verse 21 all the way to chapter 3, verse 5 and beyond, in fact. Mark presents different vignettes that display the authority of Jesus, his right to command, his ability to enforce his command. And so we dive in, verse 21. Jesus astonished the synagogue attendees by his authoritative teaching. Notice verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The interesting thing about Mark is he doesn't talk us, tell us what Jesus taught. But he demonstrates and manifests the authority of Jesus' teaching when we are told that a, an, evil, a man, uh, an evil spirit disrupted the synagogue service. 
and cried out, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the spirit could not do anything but obey. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. That's the authority of Jesus. Unclean spirits follow him. And then he exercises his authority to heal Peter's mother-in-law, verse 29 to 31. And the healing is instantaneous so that she is able immediately to serve them. And she's not the only one who is healed. Verse 34, he also healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Jesus wasn't just doing good deeds. The healings and exorcisms he performed were meant to validate his message that the kingdom of God is at hand. They demonstrate that Jesus, the Messiah, ushers in the kingdom of God as a new creation. In the words of Peter Orr, the miracles, particularly the healings, point to the new creation reality of the kingdom. They point forward to the time when the kingdom will be fully present, a time when creation will be renewed and there will be no more sickness or death. Brothers and sisters, that is the hope that we have because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And it is this hope that Jesus has brought about, that he has given us, that we are privileged to proclaim in a broken world that is filled with despair and shattered dreams. But let's admit, to think of Jesus having infinite power and authority can be really scary for many of us because we're more accustomed to seeing power and authority being abused. Here's the good news. As we continue on in these, account, in these accounts, we are reassured that we can trust Jesus. We can embrace Jesus' power and authority because he uses his authority for the good of his people. In the first place, look at verse 35 to 38 to 39. We recognize that Jesus exercises his authority in submission to his Father's good purposes. We are told that Jesus spends time, goes away, spends time with his Father in prayer, and then the disciples find him, and they want him to continue the Capernaum healing crusade. But he shuts down the suggestion, he says in verse 39, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And you get the sense that Jesus exercises his authority as the submissive servant of Yahweh. He exercises his authority as the beloved son who pleases his father by his obedience. And as the obedient son, Jesus exercises his authority with compassion. You see that chapter 1 verse 40 a leper runs in front of Jesus, kneels before him saying, if you will, you can make me clean. Now you have to understand, this leper 
would have been a social outcast. He was obligated to keep his distance from people because anyone he touched became ritually unclean. He was supposed to be yelling, unclean, unclean, stay away from me. And his request would have been offensive because you notice how he phrases it. If you are willing, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. As if, Jesus, I don't know if you're willing. Bit, bit insulting to Jesus. Nonetheless, look at verse 41. Look at the response of Jesus. And yes, I know some people say moved with anger. It's not pity, but anger, we, we don't know. Let's take the ESV as it stands. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Stop for a moment and imagine how Jesus' touch would have made this man feel. This man would have been isolated and rejected by people, by even his own family, for months, maybe for years. Jesus' touch expressed a compassionate grace that recognized the humanity of this man and that acknowledged his need for more than physical healing. But we also see the greatness of Jesus, don't we? Because unclean, Jesus is so great, uncleanness cannot contaminate him. Rather, Jesus is so infinitely holy that his touch purifies what is unclean. And so Mark then moves us further into the greatness of Jesus in the passage that we read when he tells us that Jesus forgives the sins of a paralyzed man whose friends had lowered him through the roof of the house while Jesus was preaching the word. The scribes rightly recognize that Jesus is claiming the authority to do what only God could do. And so to validate his authority, Jesus heals the paralyzed man. After all, look, no one, Jesus' question in verse 9 is to the point, right? No one could tell whether the man's sin was really forgiven. But everyone could see that Jesus had made him well. And so that healing would validate his claim to be able to forgive sins. And we are told in verse 12 that the man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God. Now, if, if you've ever been bedridden for a, a, a week, you know that you're not going to be able to stand right away, right? If you've ever tried lying down in bed 24-7 for a whole week or maybe for a whole month, the muscles in your leg will atrophy. Never mind being able to move. The healing that Jesus performed was so amazing. A man who'd been paralyzed for a long time is able to pick up his bed and go home. But it is meant to, to show us more than just God's amazing ability. 
It is meant to make us recognize that there is none like Jesus because he alone can address our greatest need. He has the power to forgive our sin. And here's the even better news. We are told that Jesus has come to call sinners to himself. And we find that in chapter 2, verse 14, when he calls a tax collector named Levi. And there's a difference between the calling of Peter, James, Andrew, and John and the calling of Levi. See, the first four were also sinners. But the religious crowd would have considered them righteous, law-abiding Jews. Levi was a different situation. He was a tax collector. A tax collector would have been a traitor to Israel because he was collaborating with the hated Romans. And worse, tax collectors were also corrupt oppressors of the people. See, to become a tax collector, you did not apply to the CRA. To become a tax collector in those days, you would bid for the right to collect taxes. You'd say, I'll raise so much money, say $100,000 for the government, for the Romans. And anything you collected over and above that $100,000 you committed to give to Rome was yours to keep. And so you can imagine that these tax collectors would charge, well, maybe double what they were supposed to charge. And as a result, no self-respecting Jew would be seen in their company, much less eat with them. And yet, notice verse 15. Jesus does not just call Levi to follow him. He also has dinner at his house with other sinners. The authority of Jesus extends radical grace. It's best expressed in verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's great news because, well, all of us are sinners. It's not surprising, though, that the scribes and Pharisees were scandalized. But Jesus does not back down for political reasons. In fact, Jesus actually ups the ante. We find in verse 18 onwards that people criticized his disciples for not being as pious as John's followers and the disciples of the Pharisees because they did not fast. And Jesus explained that the presence of the bridegroom demanded feasting, not fasting. Verse 19. We may not catch the illusion here, but that is Jesus stirring the pot. Because in calling himself the bridegroom, Jesus puts himself yet again in the place of God. Because Isaiah 62, verse 4 and verse 5, would point to God as the bridegroom of Israel. And as if that were enough, not, that were not enough, Jesus actually 
stirs the pot even further. We find in verse 23, 24, that the Pharisees complained that his disciples were breaking the Sabbath because they were plucking heads of grain. Now, he could have simply corrected their misinterpretation of the law. Instead, Jesus puts himself on the level of David when he says, well, didn't, didn't the high priest Abiathar gave David uh, ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? David was allowed. Why shouldn't my disciples do that? And in saying that, Jesus is claiming to be on the same level as David. And then, he takes it a step further. In verse 27 and 28, when he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man, referring to himself, is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, you may not catch the illusion, but who is the Lord of the Sabbath? Who defines Sabbath? Who instituted Sabbath? God. So when Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I get to call the shots because I am God. And he validates his claim in chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 5, when he heals a man with a withered hand. Even when the people were looking at him and wondering whether he would heal the man. The point of it is, in all the vignettes in this passage, Jesus was asserting his divine authority. His actions demonstrate that he is the Son of God whose very presence ushers in God's saving reign. And if he is ushering God's saving reign, then he must be making all things new. That's the point of chapter 2, verse 22, when he talks about new wine requiring new wineskins and um, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. He's saying it cannot be business as usual. Something new has come. Something radical has arrived. It's turning things upside down. I like the way Rhodes and Michi point um, Describe it. God's rule challenges every other claim to power. The conflicts that result occur in part because of what God is doing. In part, the conflicts occur too because people do not recognize God's rule or submit to it. The result is the power struggle between Jesus and those who resist or oppose him. And as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you will see that Jesus' chief opponents are not the sinners, but the religious establishment. The scribes, the Pharisees, who ought to have known better. In fact, you will see next week, even his family ought to have known better. But the point that is being made by Mark is that everyone, including the religious establishment, needed to repent and submit to Jesus. As Tim Keller points out, legalism and lawlessness are really two sides of the same coin of unbelief. 
They are both ways of resisting the authority of God. And so, chapter 3, verse 6, it's not surprising that the Pharisees were so incensed. We are told the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, there's a really big irony going on here because Jesus has just made someone whole. And he asked the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? These Pharisees who are so eager to keep the law are now just about our planning to kill someone who just saved life. And there's another irony here because the Herodians were collaborators with Herod, political traitors. The Pharisees, if you will, were the faithful Jews who had nothing to do with the Romans. Imagine liberals and conservatives coming together against a common enemy. That's what's going on here. But there's an even deeper irony going on here. See, Jesus demonstrates and exercises his greatness in order to sign his own death warrant. You notice that? From the very beginning of his ministry, he provokes a confrontation with the religious authorities so that they would want to kill him. That's how Jesus exercised his divine authority. And we know the end of the story. The Pharisees eventually manage to get rid of Jesus, to destroy him. But we know the even greater irony, isn't it? Don't we? The success of the Pharisees in destroying Jesus was the key to Jesus' own triumph. For by his death, he paid the price for our sin. And those who trust in him are declared righteous by God. His resurrection brings in the new creation that will be consummated when he returns. So that we can truly say, Jesus did not simply proclaim the good news. He himself is the good news. And so as we close, I hope you realize that Mark is posing a challenge to all of us. How will you respond? Will you be on the side of the Pharisees who resisted Jesus? Or will you be like Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Levi? Will you acknowledge that you are a sinner Repent and submit to Jesus in faith regardless of the cost and so receive the forgiveness only he can offer. And will you embrace the discomfort of Jesus turning your life upside down and inside out so that you may know the joy of sharing in his sufferings and the glory of the new creation? 
Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have answered the prayer of Isaiah. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Thank you for Christ who has come as a mighty warrior to bring salvation for his people. And we thank you that he came not as a conqueror by force. He came to lay down his life because in that sacrifice of himself, he paid the price for our sins, reconciled us to you through faith, and has begun to make all things new. Father, it is a concept strange to us because we are so used to the earthly way of doing things. But I pray, Father, that as we reflect on the glory of the suffering servant, on the majesty of the king who gives himself for his people, that you would change our affections, humble us as we see the greatness, the beauty, the majesty of our Savior. And we pray that your spirit would begin to transform us so that we would reflect his ways, his beauty, so that we as a church would truly be a place where Believers are strengthened and encouraged in a place that shines forth with the gospel, not because of anything in us, but because delight in you overflows so that we cannot but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of the greatness of our Savior. This is in Christ's name. Amen.